The future of Fannie and Freddie is on the table and AIG is looking for a new boss. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. David was looking at some articles about NBC's TV schedule for Mm -hmm. this fall. And apparently there's some show called The Blacklist that is just killing it for NBC. I've never even heard of it. I'm sure you have. You are. I've heard of it. I don't watch it. The, the resident, the resident TV expert. What's the guy? James Spader. I, I don't know. I've never heard. Of, I've never it heard of the show. I don't it know. Kind of annoys me. James Spader annoys you. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember his role in The Office? Yeah, that was. He was weird. one of the prospective bosses. His last name was like California or something. Yeah. He was awesome. Yeah. In that role, he was awesome. It in was that weird. role, weird. He annoyed me. No, he was awesome. Kind of like a, I feel like he's got like a Christopher Walken thing going on just a little like bit. Like his face or his voice? No, like his, like his thing. His thing. His thing, his whole thing. That's weird. <laughs> Why is that weird? I don't so, know. So are you grouping me with James Spader now? Yeah. All right, on to the headlines. On to the headlines. No more of this. First headline of the day, Wall Street Journal. Fanny Freddie, can't purge him? Merge him. That was this clever. Is, that is clever. Do you see what he did with the, the words there? Yeah, it's, it's good. This is John Carney writing for the Wall Street Journal. The article is about the advantages that could accrue to the government, which is currently controlling, owning, benefiting from Fannie and Freddie. Uh, talking about further, further advantages. Well, let me back up a second. It first talks about the fact that the reform proposals for Fannie and Freddie are likely to die on the vine. Yeah. That's, that's uh, Carney's assumption here. And then he talks about the advantages that, that could be seen if the two were merged, and instead of having two separate entities, you had one. Now, I'll let you hit on any of the details that jumped out at you, but I can't help but, but read this part of what Carney had to say towards the end. A combination, this is Carney writing, a combination would also have the benefit of once and for all dispelling the hopes of speculators in their stocks that either or both companies might one day be returned to the status quo ante. Private companies whose shareholders benefit from an implicit government guarantee. That group includes Bill Ackman, who just recently put forward a strong, another strong case. 100 plus slide presentation. I kind of wonder what is in those slides. Is it just like, is it pictures of Bill Ackman (laughs) giving a thumbs up? In front of an American flag? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Fanny and Freddie. So, uh, any anything else to jump out at you in this? Do, do you think he's right, and do you think that this is a legitimate possibility? I think it makes sense. Whether it's a possibility, it probably has the same, maybe the same likelihood of the reforms going. Do you really through. think so? Because I, I feel like one of the things we've talked about here is that there's the reforms, there's the putting it back on the private market, and then there's the current status quo, which is the government continuing to basically benefit from owning these and continuing to keep them going. And at this point, I'm starting to think that that number three, that current status quo, is seeming more likely as opposed to full-on reform. And doing a merger of the two seems like it makes a lot of sense in that scenario. It seems not unlikely. Yeah, I think the status quo does seem likely to continue. Uh But the perception of having two different entities, I think, helps the perception that the government isn't completely owning the housing market here. So they can at least say, well, these two entities are competing for business. Mm-hmm. They have to keep fees low in order to compete against each other, which they're not really doing. But the perception, the political realities of it, I think they'll probably remain separate. Although it does make sense for them to be combined. It would probably save money, maybe be easier to manage. Uh, but yes, it would. 
in theory, dash any hopes of shareholders hoping that these return to private hands. Right. All right, second headline. Second headline, talking AIG. This is from the Wall Street Journal as well. Race for AIG's top job has two favorites. That's Peter Hancock and Jay Wintraub. Hancock runs the property and casualty insurance segment, and then we have Wintraub running the life and retirement segment here. It's just me or does... Hancock look a little bit like a baseball manager. He's got that sort of, I've got indigestion, I've got permanent indigestion kind of look. Is that what baseball managers look like? Oh, are you kidding me? There's no crying at AIG. I, I, feel, I feel like baseball managers just have handfuls of tums in their pocket at all times because of the indigestion. So we got, we got Hancock came up through the ranks at, at J.P. Morgan working in their derivatives group, came over to AIG kind of to clean up the derivatives group there, mm-hmm. and then also run the property and casualty. We have Wintraub kind of spent his... A longer time with AIG and legacy AIG companies here, both both people seemingly good candidates. Mm-hmm. My question is, this is an issue that, that matters in the long run. It'll definitely make a difference who's running the company, but as a shareholder today, should we, should we really care? Because it's hard to say whether it's going to be a positive or negative who gets the top spot there. As a shareholder myself, I would feel pretty comfortable with either of these guys being put in the leadership role. I guess increasingly my concern isn't who, as long as it's one of those two. I'd I'd rather not see the board go outside of AIG to bring somebody in at this point because both of these guys at this point have significant experience at AIG. They've gone through this whole process of the the rebuilding of AIG, we could call it. So I'd rather see one of these two get the job. And, And at this point, I'm pretty comfortable with either one of them. So my bigger concern is that if both of them now have the CEO job in their sights, and one of them does, one of them will not get it. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think they're going to do a co-CEO kind of thing here. So I'd hate to see one of them get the CEO role and then the other one bounce, get out of there. Yeah. I, I don't know how, how likely that's... It's probably a pretty unlikely scenario, but that's my bigger concern. My assumption was that Hancock pretty much had it locked down, but even though... I. There's definitely been progress made in the property and casualty insurance, and I, and I think that's looking a lot better. But we haven't seen a drastic turnaround. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the life insurance, the life and retirement uh, group at AIG has performed so well. That's, that's kind of elevated Wintraub in my eyes. So I don't know. I don't know if he's kind of gained uh, pole position here on, on Hancock a little bit. Right. Something to watch. And with any financial company, management extremely important. So if you're a shareholder, prospective shareholder, maybe just try to learn a little bit more about these guys. It's kind of a bummer that Ben Mache can't stick around indefinitely. But he's, old. he's got a, what is it, a winery in Croatia? Or is it just like a nice just resort like a, house? Like a baller <laughs> bachelor pad. <laughs> whatever whatever it is, I guess you can't really. I guess you can't really argue with that. Yeah. Third and final headline. Uh, this is... This is Amazon. Interesting choice here, David. This is Amazon. This is Timothy Geithner's new book, College Stress Test. This is just out from the first three customer reviews, two and, two and a half stars. Well, there's three customer reviews, and I scrolled down and looked at them, and two of the reviews are people that didn't even read the book. They're just saying, why would anyone read a Tim Geithner book? I gave it a one star, so ignore the two and a half. Was one of them review. Sheila Bear? Maybe. Could have been a pen name. Are you interested in reading this book? Uh, not really. I'll read the reviews around it. I know Andrew Ross Sorkin over at Dealbook, New York Times, has a very, very extensive uh, article about Geithner running this weekend. So maybe I'll read that. T- touches on the book. But personal memoirs, not really interested. Are you? 
I, it's one of those books where I feel somewhat obligated to read it. I, at this point, I've read so many books about the financial crisis. But he's such a he's such a central player. He was such a central player in that process. It would, I guess it would be kind of interesting to hear his point of view. The problem is, is that he was a very polarizing figure. So this book, in large part, and I, I haven't read it yet, so maybe I should give, uh, I don't want to call him Timmy. Can I call him Timmy? Can, can I call him Timmy? Yeah. I want to give, Tim, give Mr. Geithner the benefit of the doubt and not say that it's just aimed at being a defense of himself. Um, but that's my that's my assumption. My, my assumption is that the book is largely going to be him defending himself, defending his decisions, because between the general public, who I don't think understand understood a lot of what he did uh, and railed against him, folks like Sheila Bear, mm-hmm. who just had no love lost for Geithner, I, I think he feels like he has to set the record straight. We might. I say. mean, everyone everyone tries to criticize Secretary of the Treasury chairman of the Fed, most people aren't qualified to criticize those people. You know, whether, whether you think they did a good or a bad job, I would say most people don't understand the full picture and can't put themselves in that situation. So you, you however, not, though, are in a, per- you're in a perfect position to criticize. I'm in a no have- position to criticize. All right, on that note, let's move on to the, the focus. We have a, I, I don't know if I'd say we have a big week ahead. It's a very we'll, small week, actually. We'll, we have a week ahead. Why is it a small week? Not much going on. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of economic releases. There's retail sales coming out. A lot of people will be talking you about that. that. There's, <laughs> I don't love that stuff. You love I macro stuff. You just love it. I, I don't even I don't even generally pay attention to macro stuff. But there will be a lot of media focus around it. Earnings season is still surprisingly enough in full swing. I we haven't heard what as quarter much. is this? I don't even know. Second, first, first quarter. Okay, second quarter ends June thirtieth. Well, some companies are on, like, 2015 year old. Well, that's true. So we've still got a lot of earnings coming out this week. A couple of them that I have on my radar. Uh, first, um, we've got Progressive coming out. I think it's Tuesday. Pretty sure it's Tuesday. Uh, coming out with earnings. This is a company that's just generally on my radar right now. This is an active recommendation, stock recommendation at our Inside Value service. Joe Mager running the Inside Value service has done just such a great job. And has a special place in our hearts because he's got so many financial companies on the Inside Value uh, Active Scorecard. Now, when we were at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, we actually heard Buffett talking a little bit about Progressive mm-hmm. because there was a question about some whether Geico would be using new technologies to help its insurance. Mm-hmm. This is actually an issue that came up last year as well. So this is the second year in a row that... Buffett has had to address this, and this pertains specifically to the, I think it's called the, the snapshot snapshot, yep. snapshot that, that Progressive uses. Basically in-car measuring tools of your driving, your preferences, stuff like that. I think it's a pretty, pretty sharp piece of technology, um, and so I think that's impressive, and I think it's interesting that people are seeing this and that Buffett had to address this two years in a row. But then the, the next day when we were at the, the lunch the, or the brunch with Markel, Markel's Tom Gaynor was talking about progressive again in terms of insurers that he that he respects. Mm-hmm. So somebody asked the question of what are the top competitors out there and he kind of shied away from competitors, but he said other insurers and progressive is a name that came up. So that's on my radar. What would it take for it to get off your radar and into your portfolio? Is it just a price deal? Learn more about the company? 
What do you What do you want to see? It's it's a for me it's a more research deal. Okay. I have sort of a checklist that I go through on any stock that I buy, and I can't put something into my portfolio until I've gone through that checklist. So so we've talked about the auto insurers, and we have we have Geico, Progressive, mm-hmm. Allstate out there, State Farm, all the other ones. We've said that Progressive and Geico have the advantage because they're a direct model, mm-hmm. lower cost. Is there any downside not to have the, the agent model? Or is it 20 years out, we're going to have Geico and we're going to have Progressive, and those two are going to be fighting because I, they're I, the early leaders here? I don't think it's going to be just Geico and Progressive. Allstate does have its branches. I guess. E-shirts. They, they yep. purchase them. They have their branches out there. And there will, I think to some extent, there will always be some people who would prefer to deal with an agent. I just think as far as the bigger share of the market, technology, people's preference to go online and do this type of stuff or to do it over the phone as opposed to have an agent that they're dealing with, I just don't think that it's, I don't think it's a model that is going to continue to hold a large, a, a huge part of the market. And Buffett said Geico is number two in the market right yep. now, I believe. Behind, is it behind Allstate? Behind State Farm. State Farm, Okay. I, I think State they've Farm. passed Allstate yep. and then maybe Progressive's under there. Which is awkward for Allstate, I think, because they actually publish market share numbers in their, in their uh, annual report. The other, the other report I'll be watching later this week is Remax. So Remax is now a public company. This is the, the real estate company. And so this is, I mean, this is an opportunity to hear their take on where the housing market is right now. 2014 has been a bit of a slow start for the housing market. And one of the things I... I, I took a look at one of Remax's reports this morning from April. And one of the things that I found pretty interesting in there that the 2014 slow start for housing may be as much a seller issue as it, as it is a buyer issue. So we hear the fact that housing transactions are down. And I think the initial reaction is just that, oh, well, the demand's going away. And actually what they, what they had, one of the numbers that they had in this report was that months of supply uh, inventory so the, the number of months at the current sales pace that the yep. inventory would hold up, is it 4.1? Was it 4.1 in March? Months. So the April report was for, yeah, 4.1 months. A balanced market, they, what they would consider a balanced market is a reading of six. So that's when buyers and sellers would be balanced. So when sellers would be overwhelming buyers, then you'd see that go above six. So at 4.1, you've essentially got more demand then you have supply. And we've actually seen some of the effects of that as well because even as housing transactions decline, the number of housing transactions, the pri- housing prices have gone up and that's that, uh, that demand outstripping the supply. With a company like Remax, are we always, aren't we always going to hear it kind of through rose-colored glasses? Aren't they always going to be optimistic and be like, our business is turning around? Is that, is that really a, a fair representation of the market, you think? Uh, I think you, I, I think you do have to I think you do have to look at it for what it is, but um, I, I don't know. It, you know the, the bottom line is is that there always should be some amount of a reasonable amount of demand for housing mm-hmm. because we have a population that has kids. Those kids grow up. Those kids move out of the house. They need a place to live. So there's that constant there's that constant churn and, and need for these kind of services. So I do, I do think you need to look past any, any rose-colored glasses kind of commentary. But if you look at the numbers that they come out with, mm-hmm. the statistics that they come out with, I think that can be helpful. Cool. How about you? Anything you're looking ahead to this week? You stole all the good stuff. I stole all the good stuff. Are you progressive? Any chance that's on your radar? It is on my radar, but like you, need to research a little more. All right. <laughs> Moving on to the game for today. 
The game today is Stock Quiz. This is where we have a couple of questions. I've got, got a good tough one for you. Mm-hmm. And, Bring it. Uh, see if we can stump each other. Let's do it. What's the, am I first or are you first? You're first. I'm first. All right. Here you go, David. Over under. Was Annalise's first quarter annualized rate spread over or under 1%? I'm going to go... Do you want a hint? <laughs> it's or, or, over. It's or, a 50-50 shot. You're going to give me a hint? Okay. In, in December... It was, I believe, 1.31. It was either 1.31 or 1.41% in December. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it was over 1%. It was not. I threw oh. you off with let my me guess, Let me guess hint. it. 1.95. No, no, no. 0.95. Worse? 0.9. Okay. 0.9%. So you had, uh, they talked about it in the earnings release a little bit. You had kind of two things playing off each other here. One was... Prepayment speed, the, the change in prepayment speed slowed down a little bit versus the fourth quarter. So in the fourth quarter, we were still seeing the effects of prepayment speed slowing down. That raises, this is, gets a little bit wonky, basically the amount that they had to amortize against premiums that they paid. So when they, over, when they paid more than, par. more than par, they have to amortize that over time. So they had to speed back up. Uh, the amortization of there. And then they also added to their hedge book, so that increased costs on the other hand. So you kind of had both sides squeezing that rate. You got me. At the same time. I did. Did you, like that, did you like that hint to throw you off? Yeah, very clever. Second that's scenario. So, so. All right, I'm going to stump you now. Since 2001, <clears throat> this bank has not reported a full year return on assets less than 1%. Got U.S. Bancorp, Bank of Hawaii, Silicon Valley Bancorp, Bank of the Ozarks. Has never reported a year... <sighs> ROA less than one percent. That's a that's this is this is legitimately a really tough one because any of these, except for Silicon Valley Bank, I could see not having performed. Now less why why not them? Because I've done too much research on them, so I know their <laughs> you know. stats pretty much in the back of my hand. Um, I will go with I'm going to go with D Bank of the Ozarks. That's correct. Boom! Nailed it. Their worst year was in 2001, 1.06% return on assets. Hovered up near around 2% today. Very strong. U.S. Bancorp, not quite there. And what was the other one I had on Bank there? Bank of Hawaii. Bank of Hawaii. Had a couple years. Really? Months. A couple years? Interesting. Yeah, just one or two. Those, the guys over at Bank of the Ozarks, is uh, George Gleason, I think, mm-hmm. is, is running that bank. Rock stars. They just... Stats back it up. The stats do back it up. All right, we have an email address. That email address is WTMI at fool.com. We love getting questions to that email address, and we have a question today that we are going to answer from Bobby. Bobby asks, I was hoping you would talk about strategies that a young investor should try and utilize when both investing as well as preparing for retirement. As a 19-year-old college student, I have found that my peers tend not to invest at all. With compounding interest in mind... Wouldn't it be advantageous for me to start earlier rather than later? Well, I'm going to take the easier part of that question and say, yes, absolutely. Starting investing earlier is much better than starting later. And starting investing early really can be very, very simple. It can be as simple as going out and buying a low-cost S&P 500 index fund. It's not exciting. It's not sexy. It's not the kind of thing that's going to, uh, you know, you're not going to go to a frat party and say, hey, I just bought a low-cost index fund, and they're going to start chanting your name. Um, I don't know what kind of parties you went to. They did at mine. (laughs) I heard really cool parties. Well, you of Miami, I wouldn't wouldn't put anything. But we do. 
but but yeah, the the effect of starting even a little bit earlier. I mean, 19 years old. That's that's great. Mm-hmm. If you can start investing at 19 years old, it can be simple until uh, until he learns more and allow that to work for him over time. Strategies. Strategies. I'll take the harder part of that Strategery. question. I like how he because you're smarter. Than I me. like how he broke out between investing and and retirement there, and. As a 19-year-old, you can try to lay out your goals. So retirement's going to be decades, decades away. I mean, or maybe he wants to retire at 35. Maybe, but what are you going to go I do? I want to retire again. At what are you going to go do? It's going to be pretty close. Then you're retiring pretty soon. <laughs> you you uh, bet. <laughs> so he, not, he might not be retiring for 60 years, mm-hmm. 50 years, maybe. 50. Let's, let's call it 50. Let's call it 50. So that's a long time. He can stock I think that. Bobby money. worked he can, longer he can than that. He can stock that money away. Put it in S and P index fund it and kind of forget about it completely. doesn't need to worry about that. In terms of investing, have some goals. What are you investing for? Mm-hmm. And the rule we always use, if you need the money in the next five years, shouldn't be in the stock market. But if he's a 19-year-old and he says, hey, I would, in 10 years, I'd like to be able to buy a house, mm-hmm. then he can think about it that way, invest it in S&P index fund today, individual stocks if that's what he wants to do, and he can monitor that with a 10-year time horizon. In five years, he can revisit, see where the portfolio is, what he needs to do. Um, so have some goals in terms of what do you want to use that money for, and then kind of proceed cautiously with those goals in mind. In terms of specific investing strategies, they really run the gamut. I, I think one of the, one of the things that that any young investor should do is is study the different type, check out the different types of investing. There are different flavors of investing within. I'm not talking about trading here. I'm talking about legitimate business investing. You can invest like. Uh, Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner invests, which is more of like a VC-focused kind of thing. He looks for these companies that are doing something great today that could turn into something huge 10, 20 years from mm-hmm. now, and he's done extraordinarily well with that. On the other hand, you can invest like uh, like Inside Value, Joe Mager at Inside Value, who is looking for companies that are just sort of great, great companies, that are trade that are trading at a reasonable price, mm-hmm. and basically you can price them out and know that you're going to, to do well over time, or have a pretty good feeling that you do well over time. I think for any investor, certain types of investing just click with you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't really, if you don't have a feel for the type of investing you want to do, it's probably not going to work out. And one final thought is that uh, that Bobby can also take advantage of some of the tax advantaged accounts. Uh, being 19 years old, that can have a really big mm-hmm. impact over time. There are uh, IRAs that he could start investing in. There are also Roth IRAs that he can start investing in. They have slightly different tax consequences, but uh, I'll let him study up on that, ask some tax experts mm-hmm. on, on which of those would be the better choice for him. Cool. All right. Uh, finishing off, as we always do, on the Twitter sphere, David, what is the first tweet? What do we got? This is from Billy Kipperstock. Motley Fool analyst down there for Pro. He says, these dragons in Game of Thrones, though, in all caps. Have you started watching, are you, Game, are have you you started really? watching Game of Thrones? No, I have not. I have not. I didn't watch last night, so I don't know what that tweet's about. So you are, you are watching? Yeah, I watch it. There, there was a, did, did watch, I watched a back episode of Saturday Night Live the other day, and there was a little skit on during Weekend Update. And they had on, do you watch Saturday Night Live? Yeah. The, you, you know the character from Russia? The female character from Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They they were talking about TV shows, and she was saying Full House just came to Russia, and then they said something about Game of Thrones, and and she said, "Well, of course I watch Game of Thrones. What do you think I am, a heathen?" That's you. 
That is me, apparently. So you watch Full House, but not Game of Thrones. I love Full House. Uncle Jesse. <laughs> Uncle Jesse, indeed. Cut it, it out. out. That's Uncle Joey. I know it's Come Uncle on. Joey, but... Close enough. It's not. I mean, it, it's not. That's just a great saying. I just had to say it. Second tweet. That was our only tweet. That was our only tweet? Unless you got, That's like... the only tweet that you had? Unless you want to say something in 140 characters or less right now. Just... You just had to stick it to me that I'm not watching Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we'll end it there. All right. David being a jerk. That's the show for today. You can find us on iTunes. You can also find us on Twitter, at TMF Financials. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow.